safety was really the key driver for the design of this suit, as, as all spacesuits have been. We wanted to make sure form followed function, function being the absolute key for us. It has to work, and we'll address the cosmetics of it later. The suit has been a whole lot of fun to design. You're listening to Small Steps, Giant Leaps, a NASA Apple Knowledge Services podcast featuring interviews and stories, tapping into project experiences in order to unravel lessons learned, identify best practices, and discover novel ideas. I'm Dina Nunley. As NASA gears up to return to the moon in a sustainable way to prepare for sending astronauts to Mars, Experts are working to overcome the challenges of building next-generation spacesuits capable of withstanding the extreme environment of space. Today on the Small Steps Giant Leaps podcast, we begin a three-part series on the design of new spacesuits. We'll start with an overview of the spacesuit astronauts will wear in NASA's Orion spacecraft. The exploration vehicle will carry the crew to space farther than ever before for humans, sustain the crew during space travel, and provide safe re-entry. Our conversation is with Orion Crew Survival Systems Project Manager, Dustin Gomert. Dustin, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here and excited to talk about the work that we're doing on the Orion spacesuits. Let's start by painting a picture of the Orion spacesuit. For anyone who hasn't seen it, what does it look like? Well, it's, you know, at first glance, it's a a strange thing because to the general audience, it may look strikingly similar to what we flew in the the space shuttle program. The orange uh, ACES suit, which was the advanced crew escape suit, it was commonly by the general public called the pumpkin suit um, because of its orange color. This suit is a derivative of that in that we've adapted over time to um, take some of its key features, that color being one of them. So in general, as I describe it to you, keep in mind that historic heritage pumpkin suit, if you might. But we've taken a lot of the, the limitations that it presented to us in the shuttle program and enhanced it with lessons learned over previous uh, spaceflight programs. And so it has very much become an adaptation of that shuttle suit, plus features from the Mercury, Gemini, Apollo program, all wrapped into one, along with some new features that we've never incorporated before. What differentiates the Orion spacesuit from previous spacesuits? That's a, a good question. It's, it's also a difficult one to answer without being too presumptive. In the big context, spacesuits are largely anthropometrically unchanged from what we've been doing for the last 50 years, for example. I like to describe it to folks as a body-shaped balloon. It provides you your own personal habitable volume. What we've really done with the Orion program is try to look at what all the smart folks before us had done and take the best features of each, learn from some of the limitations of each that had, had we had experienced through the years, and really adapt them for the first time from the, truly the ground up to make it 100% integrated to the vehicle such that there is no discontinuity between functionality and safety. Safety was really the key driver for the design of this suit, as, as all spacesuits have been. But to be, have the opportunity to start at the same time as the vehicle 
and build every single facet of the suit's functionality and with the vehicle's functionality has been a great opportunity. Um, I, I would probably say that the, the ability to survive long-term in this suit is one that we've stretched further than any previous suit that's come before us. But it's not to say that we've, we've done it on our own without the lessons we've taken from those previous suits. So we, we have to give credit where credit's due. And I'd like to think we've taken what's come before us and just taken it to the next step with the opportunities afforded us with modern technology. What are a few of the dramatic safety improvements with the Orion spacesuit design? And how have lessons learned from the Space Shuttle Columbia accident influenced the overall design? That's a great question to to expand on. I was here, I had actually just started at NASA when the Columbia accident happened, and I was working in the group that managed the advanced crew escape suit at the time. And for years after that accident, we spent our our days researching what it what had gone wrong in the accident, but also what were the deficiencies in our systems that, that could have potentially protected the crew. And we uh, collectively came up with a myriad of circumstances that were uh, potential upgrades to the suit that could have made the circumstance more survivable. I, I want to be very cautious with that. The, that accident was an unsurvivable tragedy, but we did find individual facets of it that we could take and improve upon. For example, we knew that very uh, traumatic dynamic events occurred to the crew members aboard due to um, compromised restraint within the seat and compromised function of the suit as well due to limitations of the of the spacesuit uh, architecture on the shuttle. So we, from the ground up, actually figured out how do we make this suit, first off, integrate to the seat 100% and not uh, kind of sort of one size fits all, but make it so that one size can be adjusted to fit everyone perfectly as if it's their own suit and their own seat as in a NASCAR race would be where the occupants have the perfect protection system encapsulated around their body. We also looked at how can we make the system autonomous such as the crew doesn't have to take any actions whatsoever to protect them in the event of, for example, a capsule depressurization. Nothing must occur on the crew's part uh, except really sit along for the ride now and we had to make all of that so transparent to the crew that there was no no compromise to their nominal functions. And that's where safety gets really hard is how to make it work in that level of transparency that the crew uh, doesn't have any perturbations to their normal operations. And I, I think given the opportunity to do this from the ground up has really been a, a, a boon to us in that we've... I think we've come up with some pretty good solutions for Orion that will keep the crew safe and keep them very functional, applying all those lessons we learned. Could you describe the key elements of the suit? The pressure garment itself is kind of the, the part of the spacesuit that most folks uh, gravitate toward when we describe a spacesuit. The pressure garment, I'll describe it, um, if you can imagine a onesie that a, a small child might wear, with the boots that cover the booties that cover the feet, for example. So it's a, it's a pressurizable onesie, if you might. Um, it zips up down the back, um, starting with the zipper between mid shoulder blades and extends down through the crotch and actually wraps around to the front of the, the torso. Um, so the crew member would unzip it and put one leg in at a time, like a regular pair of pants and 
poked her head through the, the neck ring of the suit and the arms as well and just zip it up. And so it's not an exotic, it's not that exotic of an architecture until you really start decomposing how that that's built. And so the primary core of this onesie that is uh, the body shaped balloon, as I had previously described it, is the, is the pressurizable layer. In fancy terms, we call it the gas container, but we also commonly call it the bladder. And this gas container is what actually holds the pressure around the body. And this is important because what this does is it, it really creates your own personal atmosphere. For lack of atmosphere and space, we don't have anything else to keep that air around our body that keeps that pressure in our lungs, that keeps our blood from reaching uh, effectively boiling point at the higher altitudes. And so this is what holds it all in. Now, if you've ever watched a, a person blow a balloon up with too much pressure, you know that they have a tendency to pop. Same with these suits. And so the second layer of that suit of this onesie is integrated what we call the restraint layer. The restraint layer is what holds all of that together. So this is a very, very strong layer of fabric that's built with extremely robust seams. And so as that, that bladder tries to expand around us from the pressure inside the suit that it will hold, the restraint layer holds it all together and keeps it sound. Above that is one final layer, and that's what we call the cover layer. That's the orange part that everyone sees. And the cover layer is where we do all the tricks of integrating the safety features that the crew might need for post-landing, um, rescue straps, uh, for example, um, integration of emergency oxygen bottles that we have in the system, as well as any other features that we need. And this is the orange layer. Um, it's also Nomex, which is for flame retardancy. And it's also built to withstand any kind of um, uh, abrasions to the suit that might also damage either the restraint or the cover layer. So we've tried really hard to, to build these three layers in unison such that once they're done, uh, it's, it's a single garment for the crew that is easy to put on, easy to take off, and not a compromise in any way to wear. The mobility of it unpressurized is very much like the clothes that you or I may have on today. Um, granted, it's it's probably a little hotter given all the three layers that they wear, but we have other solutions for that that we'll get into, I'm sure, in a little while as well. Now, over that, uh, in this garment, we we put the helmet on, of course. Folks folks have seen the, the white fiberglass helmet that we'll wear over this suit, and that now is, is built in two sizes, uh, a large, which is the, the common historical size that we use for the male uh, architecture. Um, but we've also taken the opportunity of this program to build a second size helmet, which is for the smaller end of the anthropometric spectrum, most notably to help accommodate the smaller female population that has historically been more difficult to size in heritage male pattern suits. So this has very much been a, a really cool opportunity for us to really stretch the bounds of design and make all of these fit truly the whole population. Uh, a final component of that then might be the gloves. And our gloves are built very much to mimic flight gloves as a, uh, a pilot may wear and give that unpressurized functionality. At pressure, they will function as well and give the dexterity the crew is needed, but they're not built to the same level as what an EVA glove might be. And, and the reason for that is the abrasion protection that goes into those gloves adds considerable bulk, um, which is necessary for microgravity exposed space operations 
but would be a compromise to the nominal piloting functions we require intra-vehicle for this suit. Um, those are the key components. We have some boots that go on it as well. Uh, we, we have life preservers integrated to the, to, the, to the cover layer of the suit. We have some survival gear integrated to the suit as well in case of an emergency egress post-landing in the water. We have oxygen bottles that integrate to the suit as well to give us the capability to, say, leave the pad in an emergency in case there was a, a leak of a, a chemical or post-landing in case of uh, any other kind of off-nominal environmental hazardous exposure. One cool thing we were able to do was take advantage of carrying those bottles and actually give the crew the option to use them on orbit for the first time. Being filled with oxygen, they're able to sustain life um, at the lower pressures of the suit that we would have on orbit and give them actually a backup even from the vehicle or you know, thinking down the road, give us contingency capabilities for transfers from one vehicle to the next, perhaps. The, the, the sky is not even the limit, um, so to speak, in what we can do with this suit in the future. What is the biggest innovation introduced to the suit architecture? Uh, <laughs> as, as silly as this might sound, it's not in the suit itself as we look at it, but it's what's under the suit, and it comes in the form of the waste management system um, for the suit. Given that our concept of operations may require us to survive up to six days to do a contingency return from deep space or lunar orbit, um, we have to be able to manage all bodily functions of this suit, which the challenge has been considerably higher than it has been in the past. Um, one, because of the longer durations, and two, because of the now accommodation of both male and female operators in the suit. In Apollo, we did that as an agency, but you had, it, it was solely a male crew, which is the designs for an adaptation to the body are more focused. We have a diverser range of problems to solve in accommodating both male and female. And now we're also talking about not only common accommodating urine output, but also fecal output. Um, so we had to figure out how do we provide nutrition, but how do we take care of the consequences of that nutrition, which is bodily waste? And while I said the suit in terms of its shape and its function as a body-shaped balloon, in theory, it's arguably the same as what it has been for 50 plus years, but the waste management solutions and all the tricks of the trade that go on inside that suit to keep us alive long duration have very much advanced since those times. So you talked about all-male crews in the early days and how things have changed. How do you determine the sizing parameters for the spacesuit? It's an interesting thing. When you when you work in spacesuits, you stop looking at people in terms of, hey, um, he's tall or she's short or those kind of concepts. And you start looking at people very strangely in terms of you have a very long upper arm segment or your shin is longer than your, your thigh or um, very strange things that most people wouldn't consider. But we have to start looking at each individual segment of the body um, from your elbow to your wrist and your elbow to your shoulder, um, your crotch to your shoulder. Everything is, is measured. And after a while, you start to realize that that overall height is actually it's the metric that most people think of when they think of tall or short. Um, it's actually one of the most useless metrics we have in, in sizing a spacesuit. The, the big difference as though, as we've really started to look at male and, and female populations is the differences in shoulder breadth and hip breadth. 
it's not a surprise that male and female are, are generally built differently. Uh, and especially the, the astronaut population being a relatively fit population modeled after the Air Force Army Navy database as we select from. But we generally find that the females have narrower shoulder breadth and per size to size, a, a wider hip breadth. And that became problematic in the shuttle program because all the suits that we had historically built were still patterned after this idealized 1950s male anatomy with a very broad shoulders and very skinny waist. And so the compromises that had to be made were that we would end up putting them in, in a, a size of a suit, maybe larger than necessary for them to accommodate hip breadth. And then by doing so, I gave them a suit that swallowed them in terms of their shoulder breadth. And it was very compromising in terms of functionality in the long run had pressurized operations been needed. So as we looked at this, we've really started to take into account the, the true male versus female anatomy and not even generalizing it to speak, but actually taking every individual person and measuring them to say, your shoulder breadth is so many inches, your hip breadth is so many inches, your torso length is this, your leg length segment is this, and building the suit truly to their anatomy, um, personalizing it. The helmet, as, as we made the decision to create two helmets, oddly enough, it had nothing to do with head size. Everyone could fit in the large helmet that we had. It did look somewhat comical on some of the smaller females, but the problem wasn't that heads didn't fit properly. The problem was that the helmet became so large, it covered the shoulders all the way to the edges of the shoulder. And so when I mentioned, you know, we've taken integrated safety to the vehicle to the next level, I can't have a helmet that goes all the way to the shoulders and then try to put a seat belt over those shoulders to keep their crew safe. So oddly enough, things like sizing of the helmet came down not to head size, but to shoulder breadth. And so we shrunk the helmet to allow for seat belts to fit the shoulders. And then naturally the, the helmet itself shrunk, which has its advantages too. It gives the female population or even, even males with smaller head diameters, a better field of view by keeping them closer to the visor. It also gives them better airflow through the helmet by not creating such a large void in there for air to stagnate in. So I think I've kind of danced around it in a lot of ways here um, because the answer is a very hard one to give, but it truly is that you have to look at each person for what they are and not try to generically size any suit to a broad general population, but take them into account as individuals to make what I'll, uh, I, I don't want to say the perfect suit, but maybe the, the perfect suit fit for that person. And all of these features and everything that you're taking into consideration, does this all play into maximized comfort and functionality during long duration operations? Loosely, yes, but I, I'm very reluctant to use the word comfort in a scenario of six days um, in a spacesuit. For all the, all the things that we've done, I have full confidence it's going to be a, still a relatively difficult experience for the crew. And so comfort is the goal. Um, tolerability is the key, though. When you have things in the suit, a pressurized suit that fits ill um, creates pressure spots on the body. And these pressure spots, in a matter of hours, are annoying. And in a matter of more hours, are very painful. And, you know, when we go do an EVA out on the 
International Space Station, some of those things can be overlooked. You'll be out there for a period of time where that's manageable. In the context of sitting in the suit for up to six days, this 144-hour exposure, those pressure spots that may be resultant of an ill fit become intolerable relatively quickly in the context of that duration. And so and intolerable and unbearable. And so that that alone, you you know, you would you have to worry about how do you manage this rather difficult situation for the crew, both physically and mentally, because it all plays in to the big equation there. So looking at it, we we really strove to make the suit I, I use the word tolerable versus comfortable. Comfort is the goal. Tolerable is the key to making it work. And honestly, we've done a pretty good job in terms of short-term exposure, which we've done here in the lab. And, and I say short-term being several hours at a time in the suit. We have found it to be very comfortable when we take the time to adjust it uniquely to the person in the suit. And that that's really the key is getting it built to fit to the person. Generic sizing for the kind of things that we're doing now just doesn't play in as well. It, it works in some contexts. Uh, short duration, say I'm on ISS and I need to get home, a looser sizing regime can work just fine because it again, it comes back to concepts of time exposure. In our case, the time exposure is so extreme that we know it needs to be as spot on and uniquely tailored to the person as possible. Another very, very difficult aspect of this suit in terms of design that that often is overlooked is that this suit has to function unpressurized and perform many functions of mobility, and it also has to function pressurized and perform many functions of comfort, tolerability, and mobility. And simple things like, I have to lift my leg to climb a ladder or step on a step, um, we take for granted as we wear a regular pair of pants, but if you if you were to stand up and say lift your foot up and put it on the chair that you had been sitting on, you'll notice that your pants leg rises um, at your ankles. Well, when you wear a onesie, that has to be perfectly sized so there's no extra length in it. When you're pressurized, you realize that that pants leg can't rise because it's now wrapped around your foot encapsulating it, and so we have to create unique patterning to allow for that mobility in the zero pressure posture, i.e. a terrestrial state, and also the fit in the microgravity posture as in the pressurized state of the suit. And it, it becomes quite a, quite a challenge actually to, to fit all that in. Um, you know, in, in comparison, if we were to design a suit for only one state, um, such as it's only used in the pressurized context, you can really, really hone in on that one posture but our posture is so varied that we we have to kind of consider all those, not only anthropometry, but also the range of motion within that anthropometry to really accommodate the crew member. If something goes wrong, will the suit be repairable in space? We've talked about that, and there there's a lot of different aspects that go on with that, that question. And there's a lot of different aspects that go on in how we control hazards here at NASA. And so when we look at some things that we look at every failure mode of every possible scenario, and so we say, and we look at it from multiple angles, and so you could say this generic hazard exists, what is the cause of it? And so we look at it from the perspective of, say, for example, a spacesuit depressurizes. What could cause that? Well, 
maybe a, a hole in the suit or maybe a glove came disconnected or we look through every possible cause that could make that hazard happen. And then we look at it the other way. We say, okay, um, for example, I know an exact failure mode that I've, I've dreamed up and, and it's uh, a, a hole in the suit, for example. What are the consequences thereof and how do we fix that? And so we look at it from both the the cause to the consequence and the consequence to the range of causes. And we try to design in controls for all of them. Sometimes the control is that we have redundancy of a uh, of the solution um, in that if uh, if, for example, you had a, a leak in, say, your umbilical, we could have a control that allowed you to swap the umbilical with a different one or reconfigure your flow architecture to allow you to still receive breathing gas and pressure, yet exhaust into the cabin or back to the vehicle in a different manner. Some uh, hazards are rather difficult to control, such as if I was, say, in the middle of the deep space exposure, depressurized cabin scenario, and and had a hole develop in the suit, that would, that would be quite difficult to control if it was large enough. Now, one of the controls we could have would be we have reserve air that we could pump additional air in and effectively just keep feeding the system despite the leak such that it's transparent to the crew member. Um, we also look at what could cause these kind of things and say, now I need this level of protection um, for the suit to protect any kind of abrasions or damage. I need controls in the vehicle to prevent any sharp edges from existing that could cause that damage. I need to do testing on the suit to understand if it's impacted in such a way, is it robust enough to withstand those things? And then we might say, I need to know that this suit is strong enough to withstand this duration. And we'll generally test them for that times a factor of safety of up to four times. So when we test this suit, for example, to say, I believe that it is safe for 144 hours or six days, it will actually be tested with humans at pressure for durations of four times that to make sure that any margin, oh, to make sure we have margin such that any anything we may have overlooked or any unexpected manufacturing items, anything can be accounted for with still significant margin to protect the crew. So it's a difficult answer to give. Um, in some cases, we have repairs. In some cases, we have controls that prevent hazards from occurring. If you had to choose the single biggest obstacle that you've had to overcome in designing the Orion spacesuit, what would it be? Well, that's a that's a good question. But I I I think you know the suit has been a whole lot of fun to design and have been given the freedoms that we were afforded with with building this suit um the suit architecture itself given the opportunities to to tailor it as we have have um, been more fun than challenging um i think the biggest challenge really goes back to that waste management construct um, that we had spoke of earlier and we struggled with that immensely we put out um, crowdsourced challenges um, folks online may have may have heard of the space poop challenge we had a few years ago, and um, we had I I, I want to say it was about seven thousand entries um, from from all over the world on how to to manage the waste output of the crew members, and it's it racked our brains for quite some time, and I think we've come to a an adequate solution 
um, though not the perfect solution. And, and I think where we struggle the most is when we have to say and accept that that we're, we've really stretched the bounds of what can be done within the limitations presented to us. I think we always want to go to that next step and accepting when we've reached that peak target of design achievement versus further rate of return on the investment is is where we struggle quite a bit. And that's, I think, the perfectionist that everybody in this agency wants to have. But you also have to be mindful. We have to meet the mission at hand before us and deliver this suit. And I, you know, I, I struggle telling the team sometimes better is the enemy of good enough. And, and I, I, at the same time, I hate using that term because in no way do we settle for good enough, but it's sometimes you have to have to realize when you've reached the, the design that you need and press ahead so you can develop the rest of the system. So between the waste management system as a challenge, but also accepting when we have to draw the line and move forward has been a challenge to us because we just want to keep making it better and better all the time. But I think where we take a little bit of comfort is that knowing Artemis 3 and Artemis 4 and so on keep coming, we look forward to that and saying as these mission profiles expand, this will give us as the engineers the challenges and opportunities to keep improving on the suit from here on out as long as we're asked to. What is the status of the spacesuit design activity? We are actually approaching, um, within a month's time, we're approaching a milestone known as the critical design review. And the critical design review is generally considered 90% complete with the design. And that is a pretty big step. At this point, we've really completed all the generalities of the design, all of the features. We vetted them out through testing. Um, we are very high in the technical readiness level um, into where we are ready to go into a qualification phase to prove out the design. So earlier when I mentioned that we would we would stress test the suits, for example, to prove them out, we are at the point where we are ready to put pencils down on the design and go into those stress and structural testing of the suit to then say, yes, it's absolutely safe enough for our crew that we have confidence in its abilities for them and we are ready to go into pure build-to-print manufacturing for delivery once we finish that stage. So there, to get through all that testing probably is about a, another year on our side because it's an exhaustive barrage of tests that have to occur. But from a design standpoint, we are very, very close to nearing completion. At this point, most of the aspects left on the suit, I would say, are cosmetic and just things like, where am I going to put this patch? Or where do I put that name tag? What am I putting in that pocket? Is that strap really where I want to put it? And we, we intentionally put those things toward the end. We wanted to make sure form followed function, function being the absolute key for us. It has to work. And we'll address the cosmetics of it later, which is honestly a, a pretty big thing in, in today's environment. We've been a NASA of, of old, kind of, we've accepted the, the stodginess of the look of the suit, and we're trying pretty hard now to um, blend in with our commercial partners and having something that, that not only functions to perfection, but also meets the expectations of the, the modern environment and that we can relate to the, um, and inspire the, the community at large by seeing these suits and seeing our astronauts in the suit. So I guess in the big picture, yeah, we want it to look cool too, 
Um, but it has to function perfectly before we really get into that part of tweaking those aesthetics. Dustin, it has been fabulous having you on the show today. We really do appreciate you joining us on the podcast. I, I so much enjoy speaking about the suit, and I've had a really good time talking with you. Any closing thoughts? Just in general, I'm, I and, and the team that I'm on, we are so excited to see the progress we're making toward Artemis, and we're so excited to launch crew members into space. And we really hope that the, the public enjoys it as well along with us. And it's time for us to go back and make space fun, make space cool, and, and just enjoy it on the way. What we do here as a nation is so magnificent to be a part of. And we're grateful for it and proud to be here along the way. You'll find links to topics mentioned on the show, along with Dustin's bio and a transcript at apple.nasa.gov podcast. On the next episode, we'll take a closer look at the internal systems of the Orion spacesuit. And we invite you to tune in then. Thanks for listening. <laughs>